This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Spiritual Quest of a Baby Yogi, Journey Through Islam, Christianity, and Beyond. And the author is Dave Prana. And Dave joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dave. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Going to read a few things that you have written to uh, help us catch the theme of this spiritual journey that you are on. Uh, You say this, My goal is to enlighten mankind to the fact that we ourselves are the creators of our destiny. We must rise up and learn from our failures, never be lazy or negative, and always strive to be the beacon of faith, love, happiness, compassion, and peace. And as human beings, it's important that we make an honest attempt to seek God in order to achieve enlightenment. Well, there's a a lot of different aspects of this spiritual journey that you talk about. First of all, Dave, why take this journey? Uh, You're a Muslim, and yet you're going down some different religious roads. You're showing us a bigger picture than normally a Muslim would show us. Right. I'm glad you asked me that, uh, Steve. Well, uh, I was, uh, like you mentioned, I was actually uh, brought up as a Muslim in uh, Pakistan. And, uh, well, when I came to uh, the grand old United States, I uh, I decided to look beyond just the strict theology of Islam. And, uh, you know, I um, I studied many different faiths along the way and and uh, practiced Buddhism for a while and and um well to make a long story short just to give you an idea the 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 inspiration that uh i received was actually primarily through a dream that i had um after i went down uh through some very very difficult circumstances mostly financial troubles and um down in florida that's where we uh you know we decided that we were going to stay after we uh had sold our business and um, uh, my inspiration basically uh, was to go out and uh, try to understand the uh, the ancient religion of Christianity. And uh, through the dream, I was inspired to actually uh, contact a local church, and uh, thereby I actually voluntarily chose to get myself baptized, and uh, and I became a born again Christian uh, for a number of years. And uh, to this day, I actually consider myself a born-again Christian as well. Uh, But my philosophy is uh, more universal than just limited to one book. I I think we all have an innate quality that kind of connects us all with the divine. And if you really listen to and feel the the kingdom of God that is in each and every one of us, um, then we realize that the the journey that we talk about as a spiritual journey is not about uh religiosity it's not necessarily about 
uh, how good one can perform one's duties in a particular um, you know confines of a religion but it's more than that uh, the uh, you know the the bottom line is if we all try to develop universal unconditional love for each and every soul through daily meditation daily practice of meditation in in privacy of our own house in solitude and that is exactly what Jesus the gnostic Jesus that i believe in was actually trying very hard to teach us to teach his uh, disciples uh, over and over again and we seem to forget the true message and that is the number one reason why i feel that this is the time right now if you look all around the world especially in the middle east you see a huge amount of uh, people that are uprising, and that's because, you know, no matter how much worldly success that we all achieve, there is something within each and every one of us, which is our soul, uh, and that soul is crying out for some kind of uh, an understanding uh, of its lineage, and and that is the number one primary reason why I wrote this book. You talk about spiritual DNA versus biological DNA. Right. <laughs> well, uh, when I was writing this book, mostly it was through inspiration. And, um, you know, it, it took me almost four years um, when I first started writing down my thoughts. And and uh, I, I can't remember exactly which chapter it was, but I was expounding upon, you know, the one of the big issues in this world is when we look at each other, we look through our physical eyes, and of course we look at the the, the, the external uh, facade of the person, we look at the eyes and, and we decide, okay, which part of the country this person is from, uh, what type of hair that person has, what type of skin, the, the tone and the features. But we never really try to understand that we are more than just the body or the mind or even the intellect. There is the fourth piece of the puzzle, which is our spirit. Uh, and inside the body, it is our soul uh, that connects us all to the astral plane with the uh, Almighty Divine. And the spiritual DNA that I'm talking about is totally different than the biological DNA that we all have inherited through our you know, different forefathers coming from different parts of the world. And uh, the spiritual DNA, believe it or not, is actually connecting us all back to the same forefathers. And uh, the spiritual DNA is what exactly uh, Jesus of Nazareth was talking about when he said that the kingdom of God is within us, and that is our soul. And that is what we have inherited through our, not only this life, but past lives through different accomplishments and failures, that's what decides our spiritual DNA. And we're all here, Steve, not only to just correct ourselves, but we have to understand that the number one primary reason we're here is so that not only we can love God, but also love each other. The compassion that we have to develop throughout our life and throughout this journey is what really gives us true wisdom, and that is what shapes our spiritual DNA. You talk about the universal law of karma and how it applies to everyone. It's fair to everyone. That is correct. 
Um, absolutely. I, I strongly believe in that because if we keep thinking on the linear uh, theory that we all have been told over and over, especially in the Western uh, uh, philosophy or the Abrahamic religions like Judaism, Islam, and Christianity that tells us uh, that, you know, we are born and then one day we die and that's the end of that. And uh, whoever has the biggest and the most expensive toys wins the race. Well, I don't believe that. I don't buy that because that is an empty philosophy because um, the law of karma basically is cyclical. Uh, the reason we see people in misery and very few of us in uh, you know luxury is not because it's, it's just the luck of the draw. It's because we all have inherited inherited this this um, a gift, if you may, that we are born with, which is given to us not by some vague God out there, but because of our own creative force by doing the good things that we did either in this life, in our past, or in previous lives. That's what shapes our future. And that is the universal law of karma. What, and that's even expounded on um, in, in the Bible itself. Um, and I mentioned the, uh, uh, the verses where Bible mentions, uh, you know, um, as far as free will and karma goes. And... And it's something that applies to all of us. Uh, if we do the right thing today, tomorrow we will reap the benefits. Uh, you know, if, if we smile at a person, they're going to smile back to you. And if we curse or if we fight or shout or hurt somebody, of course that, that's going to come back to us. It may not come back to us right away, Steve, but believe me, it's going to come back. Eventually we all have to pay, pay the price for our own actions. So how do we, as you put it, liberate our mind from negativity, worries, and doubts? That is such a, just human nature. Right, right. Well, the, the way I learned it, because everything that I have said in my book is through personal experience, is through personal research. The way I know how to elevate ourselves from the day-to-day negativity that we live in, because we all have bills, we all have jobs, we all have worries, you know, uh, all kinds of adversity that we have to live in every day. Uh, we need to understand that that this is just so that we can become better, um, not only as physical beings, but also spiritual beings. And the best way that I know of is through daily practice of meditation. And, it, you know, you don't have to become a full-blown yogi right away. Um, if you have 30 minutes, uh, fine, just find a particular time every day, be consistent, you know, you can close the doors, find a room in your house, and make sure it's all peaceful, close your eyes, and go within, and there's different forms, there are different types of meditation techniques, there's Buddhist uh, Zen meditation techniques, there's there are Hindu uh, meditation techniques, but there are other meditation techniques that are beyond the religious bounds that we all so dearly hold on to. And the one that I personally practice is called the Pranayama meditation techniques, and that basically teaches you how to control the inhalation and exhalation of our breath. And that is very important because once we learn or master 
the techniques of breathing, then we really understand what it means uh, by the term mind over matter. And, of course, that's so important, the controlling of the mind by uh, your spirit and also to train the body. Absolutely, yep. Um, One of the things that I learned along the way is that if we learn to subjugate our bodies to our minds and our minds to our souls, and in doing so, you know, we tap into that, that universal reservoir of the divine spirit, which as Christians we call Holy Spirit, uh, then we learn how to partake even a tiny bit of the divine wisdom. And, and as a result, we better ourselves, not only uh, our individual selves, but our you know, inner circle gets blessed because we are calm and we're, we have a soothing personality and also we're full of wisdom. And then it creates a ripple effect and it goes outwards and we can start blessing others because, remember, the primary reason why we're here is to unconditionally love every single person to, to give and, and, and just be a beacon of love and hope. And the best way to accomplish that goal is through daily practice of meditation. And you also include in your book, uh, you have an appendix that has uh, different sermons. I see uh, even Billy Graham here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't really necessarily think that, you know, we find wisdom from only one particular individual. I'm an open book. I learn from anybody. I even learn from my daughter, Jazzy, you know, every day. Uh, My son, Neil, he's only nine. I learn from anybody, and wisdom is all out there, like Jesus said. It's inside you, and it's all around you. It's in the nature. So you just, the, the, the trick is to have the uh, antenna up and constantly receive the frequency where, whereby you actually become better than what you were you know, either yesterday or the day before. And also, at the end of the book, I see uh, Muslim prayers, Christian prayers, Hindu prayers, uh, family affirmations. Absolutely, yeah, because I am saying to the masses, listen, any language you speak in or any faith you belong to should not limit you um, to just one particular kind of people. Uh, you should your love and your generosity and your compassion should be limitless, just like the Father God is limitless, because we are all sons and daughters of the divine Creator. I mean, um, you know, if you think about it, uh, Jesus of Nazareth that we all so dearly love was not, uh, you know, either an American or a European, and he spoke uh, Aramaic. And if today somebody speaks Aramaic, we will stare at that person because it sounds very similar to Arabic. And, and, and I even put down the Lord's Prayer in the appendix to show to the people that when Jesus spoke in the, the Aramaic language, it wasn't anything like what we listen to, uh, you know, in our churches when, when our pastors tell us what the Lord's Prayer is about. I mean, just to give you an idea, the, the, uh, the Aramaic Lord's Prayer begins with 
Avu the Bishmaya, Nitkat the Shimmuch, Etemel Kusuch, Nevesiv Yanuch. And it goes on and on. I mean, I've repeated so many times, Steve, that I've memorized these. And Aramaic is not even my language. But I'm passionate about this stuff because I feel connected to to the universal uh, divine creative force that we all call, you know, different names. Some people call it God. Some some call, you know, some call it Jehovah. There's all kinds of different names, and I expound upon each every, you know, different name of God that I picked up along my journey. The title of the book, Spiritual Quest of a Baby Yogi, A Journey Through Islam, Christianity, and Beyond. The author is Dave Prana. Dave, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available all over the Internet. Uh, You can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble's, Borders. It's everywhere. And uh, I'm very proud to say that, you know, I've actually sold quite a few of them. (laughs) Well, we appreciate you joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve. Have a good day. Dave Prana, author of Spiritual Quest of a Baby Yogi, Journey Through Islam, Christianity, and Beyond. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central, on Toginat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Mom with Jill Hickey, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions helping you identify the real problems and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence and, more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teaches how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Magdalene, a novel, or rather, a probability. And the author is Bonnie Jones Reynolds. And Bonnie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bonnie. Hi there, Stephen. 
I'm going to read a few things that you have written about your book just to set the stage. The Magdalene is not just another story, another novel, another pious interpretation of the life of Jesus, dutifully basing itself on the facts as presented in the four Gospels. The Magdalene is impious, living and free, while being at the same time a teaching document. You also say that this book is one of the most important books that you have ever read. It's a book, as one reviewer said, to be cherished and sipped like fine wine. In fact, one Amazon reviewer said, I've now reread this book three times and slowly. Each reading gives new insights and additional ways of exploring reality and spirit. Well, you have obviously stretched people's minds and souls with your look at uh, Jesus and that whole, all his teachings. Uh, what was the motivation? Well, actually, it was organic and lifelong. I'm, sev- I'm 73 years old, and uh, I have been studying this stuff for over 50 years. I started at the age of about 10, being very, very interested in Mideastern studies and religious studies. And so I've been at it a long time, and I realized that everything I did throughout my entire life, and I've had quite a checkered career. Uh, (laughs) uh, If anybody wants to read my uh, bio, my full bio, that's on my website, which we can get to later. But um, I, um, everything that I've done led up to this. And it's not as though I just woke up one morning and said, ah, I'm going to write a book about the Magdalene. No, this book insisted upon being written. It basically wrote itself. I can tell you that I remember doing all the research, but whenever Jesus, who I call Josh, or the Magdalene, began to teach or to speak, I do not remember writing a word of that. And it's not that I was uh, channeling. I truly believe, I believe this with all my heart, that I was remembering I believe that I was there 2,000 years ago and that I heard this, and that what I wrote in this book is very close to the truth of what happened. And I had to write. I believe that I was, uh, that I'm a foot soldier, that I was uh, instructed 2,000 years ago to be back here at this time and this place to put this out to the world. And I'm, I'm one of many, many hundreds of thousands of foot soldiers, but uh, I think we all have our instructions to get the message out, and we're all working very hard to do that. So tell us, who is the Magdalene? Well, uh, we would uh, would know her as Mary Magdalene, uh, the the supposed, uh, quote-unquote, prostitute. And, of course, nowhere does it say she was a prostitute. She was not a prostitute. As a matter of fact, she was a very wealthy woman. Uh, the business of her being a prostitute was instituted uh, two to three hundred years ago by a pope who decided to preach a sermon and decided to call her a prostitute. And that's where that belief came in. And she was never ever thought of as a prostitute until uh, that pope uh, called her one. Why do you say that the four Gospels are contradictory in regard to Jesus? Oh, well, they are. I mean, uh, all you have to do is uh, read them. Um, what you, what you have in the four gospels is a uh, is a compilation of uh, myth of possibly some uh, true stories of of uh, 
outright fabrication on the part of some of the writers. Uh, you know, th- these, these Gospels were not even uh, uh, available in anywhere near the, uh, the um, form that we know them until close to the year 200, many, many years after uh, Jesus supposedly uh, died. Uh, you, you get, you get uh, uh, one Jesus who says, uh, you know, put away your sword and I, I come to bring peace. And in another one, he says, I am the, uh, I come to bring a sword. Uh, you have one Jesus who is preaching love and compassion and understanding, and another who is uh, shouting fire and brimstone. Uh, it is my contention, uh, and th- I believe that, uh, that I'm uh, presenting the thing in a very uh, truthful manner, that there were at least at least two men whose stories were uh, combined. One of them was the fire and brimstone fellow, and the other was the true prince of peace, my Josh. Uh, and um, uh, the, the stories of these two, the followers of these two men, uh, ended up combining things together and trying to make one story out of it, which is why you get... Uh, you get bounced back and forth like crazy. Uh, if you bo- if you sit down and read those the first four gospels, just sit down and read them, and you will find out that they don't make any sense at all the way they're presented. So you maintain what we know as Christianity would be rejected by Jesus today? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. He was uh, he was anti priesthood. He was anti organized religion. He was he. Uh, was more of uh, the Gnostics uh, came closer to uh, to putting forth the true teachings of Jesus, which is that that uh, God, quote unquote, is is all. God is everything. God is all that is, and uh, we are each a part of God, and that that the that spirituality resides inside each one of us and has nothing to do with any kind of organized religion organized religion is organized by those who want power and glory and control over the sheep we're abs- we're very aptly named the sheep you know sheep just uh, go back and follow wherever anyone leads them and uh, it is it is to the benefit of those who would be rich and who would have power and control to uh, have the sheep following blindly uh, with, with an organized uh, agenda of what they are told they must believe in. So we're talking about a method of control by an elite of what Absolutely. they call themselves Christians? Uh-huh. Yeah. In, yeah. The, in the church, you're saying that they've really done this for just power and riches? Uh, yes, unfortunately, if you look back through the history of the Catholic Church, um, you cannot find a, uh, a better example of a corruption, of avarice, of greed, of, uh, I mean, it's just horrible when you study, when you study the history of the papacy. It, it's, uh, you know, it'll, it'll curl your teeth. Uh, and uh, the, the whole thing was for power and glory. Let's face it, you know, uh, the more power and wealth and, and, uh, and control you give people, the more they want. Look at our world today. 
So when we talk about controversy, your book is just filled with it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But the thing that people have, I, I want people to realize that um, a lot of people are afraid to read the Magdalene. They say, oh, you know, it might take my faith away from me, or it might challenge what I've been told I'm supposed to believe. Uh, this book is not going to take anything away from you. The, what I have found, interestingly enough, is that uh, some of the, of the people who love it the most are um, uh, people who were raised Catholic and, and are, are very uh, faithful Catholics. They love this book. They find that it's giving them, that the Magdalene will give to you. It was not going to take anything away. You're going to come out loving Jesus and understanding Jesus and with, with, with more uh, spirituality and wonderful things in your heart than your church ever gave you. Tell us about what you call the male bias of the church. <laughs> You've got to be kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's going on right now. I mean, why aren't women priests? Uh, it's uh, Jesus. I, when you look at Jesus, one of the, the true parts that did get into the Gospels was the fact that there were many women, he had many women followers. Of course, they were, uh, when the writers wrote about them, they were relegated to a second position. But if you look at the Gnostic Gospels that were dug up in the, uh, in the deserts of Egypt back in about 1946, uh, they make it very obvious, obvious that Mary Magdalene was uh, the chosen, the chosen, if you want to call the pope or leader, that he had chosen her as the one who could go forward and put his philosophy and his wishes and his teachings forward better than anyone else. And Peter was wildly jealous of, of this woman. Wildly jealous. And of course, the uh, Luke uh, rather not Luke, uh, Paul, uh, who was Saul and became what we think of as, as uh, St. Paul, was also viciously anti-feminine. And uh, this whole thing got put forward over to the church where women were considered to be um, fourth, fifth, sixth class, class uh, uh, citizens. And they still are to this day, as far as the church is concerned. You claim that Jesus was married? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. The, way to, the wedding at Cana was, was his wedding to Mary Magdalene. Uh, if, if you look at it, when, when you have um, uh, Mary coming to Jesus and saying, God, we're running out of wine, you know, we've got to do something about it, we're running out of wine, how many weddings have you ever gone to where the guests concern themselves with the fact that they're running out of wine. This is what the hosts do. The hosts are the ones who make sure that there are, there's enough wine for the guests. And that one little thing alone tips you off to the fact that this was the wedding of Jesus, and it was his mother, the hostess, coming to the host and saying, hey, we've got to have more wine, do something, you know, put your hands on that barrel and make some, make some wine out of it. You also say that everything about the Magdalene is relevant to our current world. Yes, it, at the time that, uh, that Jesus lived, it was at the turn of a double millennium. Uh, and uh, the double millenniums are times of great change and great chaos. 
And uh, if you look at what was going on there, uh, I, I take great pains in the Magdalene to help the reader understand the political, social, religious, everything that was going on. And it was a madhouse. It was a total madhouse. And this is exactly what is happening now, which is why those of us who were given the message back then are back here again to get the message out in a better way because we never in the history of the world has have we been in as much contact with one another as we are now with the Internet, with your tweeting and Twittering, and heaven only knows what else. Um, this is a time when a message can get out and go worldwide uh, in, in, in hours, in days. And uh, that's what we are here for, to, to get this message out at this time of great chaos. And the interesting thing is that what was going on in Palestine at that time is uh, Palestine was, was a hotbed of chaos, and look at what is happening in Palestine today. The Magdalene is a story whose time has come, you write. Truth's time has come. Meet your friend Jesus, who you can truly love, even adore for the first time in your life, and laugh with him, love with him, dance with him. Yeah. That's a, uh, you know, obviously you portray him as just your friend. Uh, he is absolutely your when you come out of this, you will have the best new friends in the world. My Josh is just the greatest guy you ever met. Everyone is going to come away absolutely loving this man. Anything else you'd like to share with us? We have about a minute. Well, the, what I would share with you is that uh, this book is desperately needed right now. Uh, this book, and, and I can say this because uh, I am not sure how much of it came from me and how much of it came from memory. I think a great deal of it came from memory and is the truth of the situation. And we need that truth now. We are desperate to find a spirituality within ourselves right now. Our world needs it or so desperately we're going to destroy our world unless we can find that spirituality. And the Magdalene will help you find that. And you have a website. Yes, it's plain old Bonnie Jones Reynolds dot com and uh, you can read as, as I said you can read my very exciting biography on that <laughs> and you we can also get it from uh, other retailers online retailers oh yeah Amazon uh, uh, is uh, available through uh, Barnes and Noble Baker and Taylor uh, and uh, through my own website sure Bonnie thank you so much for being with us well thank you that was Bonnie Jones Reynolds. She is the author of her book, The Magdalene, a novel, or rather, a probability. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Dix of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station.
Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriend at Principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Let Them Have Books, a formula for universal reading proficiency. And the author is Gabby Chapman, and Gabby joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Gabby. Hi there. I'm going to read a few things you've written about your book just to set the stage. You say this, Let Them Have Books presents a model for a reading education that will deliver the skill and the lifelong love of reading to every child. This model consists of extensive pre-literacy experience, early recognition and resolution of potential difficulties in learning to read, and a dynamic reading culture in schools that is centered on encouraging kids to choose their own books. Well, that all makes sense. Why aren't we doing that everywhere? (laughs) Well, that's a a very good question (laughs) and a a long answer. And a long answer. That's why you wrote the book. Yeah. (laughs) Well, give us some of your background, Gabby, and also the motivation to uh, publish this book. My recent background is being a teacher. Um, I've been an English teacher for the last eight or nine years, and I've spent most of my life involved in education in one form or another. I was on a school board for a while, was the president of a school board. Uh, I grew up with an uncle who was a writer, uh, John Holt, about, wrote about education and spent a lot of time in our house talking about it. So it's been a concern of mine my whole life. I wrote this book because so many children struggle with reading in school. First of all, I can always remember somebody saying to me, read to your little kids, read to them, and they will love reading. Is it that simple? It's it's not that simple, but it, that's very important. I actually have one thing that I say before that, before you read to your kids, is read yourself, enjoy reading yourself, um, because yes, it does help to read to kids, but if you love to read yourself, when you are reading to them, you will impart that love to them and that it is something to enjoy. The only reason that kids are going to read enough for to really benefit them is if they enjoy it and they learn that joy from their parents reading to them. So, yes, 
but also read books for your own pleasure, not just to your kids. So it doesn't, you don't want it to be mechanical. You, they want to feel that from you because it's just natural then. If you love reading, then it's going to come, that kind of love is going to be felt by the child. It, it is true, and it's a funny thing, but there's also a study that's been done that has shown that households that have lots of books in them, even if the kids don't read the books, those kids do better in school learning how to read than kids who don't have households full of books. So it's just that environment and that statement and that feeling for books that's transferred to kids that goes a long way to helping them learn how to read and be successful with reading. So is this part of this poor literary experience? Is that what you're saying? The early literary experience, yes. Um, When kids enter school... Some kids have heard thousands more words than others. They've been read to. They they recognize more words. They have stronger vocabulary. They know books. They love books. They're interested in books. And these kids have an immense advantage over the kids who don't have that. And really, it can take maybe never, but, you know, it takes a long time for those kids to catch up who don't have that pre-literacy experience. What causes a child to hate to read? The, the number one thing that causes a child to hate to read is being forced to read books or, or stories that they're not interested in reading at all, which would be bad enough, but then after you force them to read something they don't want to read, forcing them to do exercises on them, explain what they read that they didn't want to read, <laughs> take tests on what they read that they don't didn't want to read. In other words, taking all the joy out of reading and making it a chore. That's the number one thing. The other thing, of course, is not doing the opposite, not providing them with uh, books that they will enjoy so they can learn to love it. So it's key then that the system allow them to read what they want to read, you're saying? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, it seems like that could be taken to the extreme. For well, ex- For example, my son who just devoured books, but he seemed to read a lot of science fiction. Uh-huh. And I used to think, wow, that's all he seems to be doing is reading science fiction. He's reading a lot of books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But... You know he he's uh he's very verbal and he's a manager in a business so maybe it all worked out. <laughs> well, that's exactly it. You know, I don't know myself how you can take it to extreme. Um, I have, from my own experience, I have watched kids who start out reading science fiction or gets you know even younger than that they get stuck in certain types of series and if they read enough they're going to get bored with the same old same old and move on the only and particularly if they start young the quantity that they can read over the course of their school years they're bound to move on to something else because there just isn't enough books in that in a narrow genre uh, I have not seen um, it being carried to an extreme, and I've seen kids who read a lot of books. You say that school is the best place for kids to read books. The reason for that is that it's a peer environment, and that 
is very encouraging. And there's also been studies that show that kids who read from their own books in school have more time in school compared to kids who do the same reading at home. The ones that do it in school gain more from it. That's because they share with their friends, they get support from their friends and their classmates for being a reader, and also because school is a learning place and reading is the best way to learn. Also, school is the best place to access books. If hopefully school has a really good library, kids can go there to read during school, find new books. And also, there's so many distractions at home these days with um, TV and uh, media and video games and and lots of other things. So a school can be a really quiet, supportive place for kids to read. What's the best way to reward a child for reading? Find that child another book that they'll like as much as the book they just read. Ooh, that's, uh, wouldn't have thought of that. I, I, was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking a lot of other things. The candy bar. Yeah, all the other stuff, you know. That, Money. <laughs> yeah, you know, that stuff that doesn't really, uh, I guess, mean much, right? Right. <laughs> In the long run, anyway. And if, if, a, if a kid is really enjoying reading, that will be the best reward. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. So your book is broken down into different parts. You have why kids should read, why kids don't read, what kids need to become readers. Now, there's a real challenge, dyslexia. How do we deal with that? Dyslexia is a a different brain structure, and I explain it to a great depth in my book. Um, And Learning to read is basically connecting different parts of the brain to come up with one product, and that is uh, visual symbols, sounds, and meaning. And when a brain is structured in such a way that that connection isn't made as efficiently, it makes it harder to learn to read. And unfortunately, in our school system, something gets tacked onto that because usually not discovered until a kid's fairly far along in the learning to read process, and so they slip behind, they have to get extra help, they're separated out, uh, they're labeled as special education, they, they feel that there's something wrong with them, and they get this sort of added trauma um, that goes on top of that. So I, I devote quite a bit in my book to that. My feeling, and from what I have observed, is if it's recognized early enough and if uh, special training is is given to the child, that it does not need to be the trauma. And all dyslexic uh, children can become readers and very good readers. Now, the three words, practice, 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 which we use in a lot of different uh, uh, skills we're trying to learn, does that apply here the same way? Oh, absolutely. But this, in this case, practice is reading. Yes, reading and, and reading what you enjoy to read. Yes. So, and if you, if so, you enjoy it, you're going to read a lot of it, so you're going to get lots right. of practice. So the practice isn't something that is the same like practicing the piano over and over and again where you might get tired of the same old piece that you're trying to learn. Well, it's like uh, my husband's a piano player, and he doesn't practice. He just plays. Mm, okay. <laughs> so, so that's a, a different way of looking at it. He has lots of fun doing it. There's nothing he'd rather do, I think. 
um, and it gets better by doing it, and that's the same thing with okay. uh, reading. Okay, we have some time at the end here to make a few comments. I'd like you to comment on what's the best advice, the one piece of advice to tell a parent. And we also want you to tell teachers and and administrators and also legislators. So let's start with the parent. What's the number one thing parent must do? Well, as I said earlier, the, the number one thing parent, teacher, educators should do is read be literate yourself, love to read yourself. Only then and only then can you feel the the passion about passing that on to children, and that is the only way that they will pick it up also. Um, so that's that's the number one thing. And what was the second part of that question? Well, I was just, you know, that, that applies to parents, teachers, administrators, and legislators. Right. And the second because thing... that forms an attitude about reading then, doesn't yes. it? Okay. And the second thing, number one thing, is access. The main reason kids themselves say they don't read more than they do is they don't have access to the books they want to read. They need to have the choices, they need to have the time to read it, but they need to have access to it. And currently in our education system, access is being shut down. Libraries are being cut back. A lot of schools don't even put in libraries. And uh, summer uh, school libraries are not open. Kids don't have access to books. And if they have access to them, they will read them. Where do you see children losing interest in reading? Where does that happen? What what age is well, most vulnerable? It, it happens, it begins about fourth grade, and it accelerates throughout the school year. So it's, you know, it's the 12th grade, more dislike reading than any other grade. So it's something that is being learned in school. Once they learn how, they're excited, they want to read, they have a positive feeling about books that slowly disintegrates as they pass through the school system. And today you say that by 12th grade, fewer than 25% of them like to read, and their right. reading test scores hit bottom. That's a real disadvantage for the rest of their lives. It's a real disadvantage, and it's totally unnecessary. I can, I can completely see a situation where 95 to 100% of seniors love to read and have a very positive attitude toward it. The title of the book, Let Them Have Books, a formula for universal reading proficiency. And the author is Gabby Chapman. Gabby, tell us how to get your book. It's available wherever books are sold. I also have a website, letthemhavebooks.com, one word, all lowercase. My website has a lot of information also for parents and teachers well we appreciate you joining us thank you gabby you're welcome that was gabby chapman author of her book let them have books a formula for universal reading proficiency iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.